You're encountering people. When you sit in that seat, the person to the left, to the right of you, in front of you, or behind you are very, very important. And I hope in a genuine way, not in a sticky emotionalism, but in a genuine way, we would be able to communicate. We care about you, and we hope you will come back. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the 16th and final chapter of the Book of Romans, and we've been looking at serving. Now, all the members of the church are called to serve, but some are singled out to an office of service, namely deaconship. And as we pick up, Pastor Brogy from 1 Timothy 3.8 and Titus 1.7 shows that the Bible specifically calls men to the office of deacon. Let's join him now. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. If you can tell me all the way through this whole section where he describes the qualifications for a deacon, he uses male descriptions. Why? Because he's talking about men. And if you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be a deacon. You say, why does he drop this bomb in here about women or the wives of deacons? Very important question. Because many times a deacon, because he is a servant, will find himself serving alongside with his wife. A single mom has a need, a, a widow or a widow in the church has a need, and, and because wisdom dictates he doesn't go there alone, he brings his wife along. Or he cares for some family in the church, and they show up at their house with a problem, and they're struggling in their marriage, and the wife is there alongside of her husband. And if that wife doesn't have control of her tongue because she becomes privy of information, then she destroys the counseling relationship. Look, there's a lot of good men I've seen in my years of ministry who are highly qualified to be deacons, but their wife has disqualified them because they're gossips. So he drops this right in the middle. Now, that's not to say that men can't be gossips. They can. And the Bible speaks of that as well. But the deacon's wife has to have some certain things in place as well. Look, it's not a matter of equality. It's a matter of roles. There are some things that only men can do in the church, and there are some things that only women can do in the church. Now, I know what I'm saying is not popular, and it's certainly not politically correct, but it's biblical. There are some things only women can do. For instance, when Paul speaks to Titus, the pastor, in Titus 2, he says this, "'Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior.'" not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they might encourage the young women. And then he gives a whole course of what they are to teach. And that's how we do women's ministry here. Most women's ministries I see in the country are a joke. You've got women trying to teach like men, and they've ignored the curriculum that God gave here in Titus 2. And so real, true women's ministry is to be done, whatever book of the Bible you're studying, through the lens of Titus chapter 2. And if you know this chapter, in verse 3, he says, Titus, you teach the older women. In verse 6, he says, Titus, you teach the young men. 
In verse 1, he says, Titus, you teach the older men. In verse 9, he says, Titus, you teach the bond slaves. Teach the older men. Teach the older women. Teach the younger men. Teach the bond slaves. But Titus, don't you teach the younger women. I, as a pastor, am not to have a discipling relationship with a younger woman. Why? Two reasons. Number one, God knows that very often a pastor, if he is really qualified, is a caring individual. So some woman comes in, she seeks counsel from a pastor, he's understanding, he's caring, he listens, and she lives with some tyrant at home who never listens to her. And all of a sudden, she becomes infatuated in that counseling relationship. And because we've ignored this advice, there's been great scandal in the church throughout the centuries. Not to mention there are some things that women just do a whole lot better than men do. Listen, ladies, you know a whole lot more about breastfeeding than I do. And you're much more qualified to teach the younger woman than I am on that subject. And God knows that. So when you look at the immediate context of Romans 16, it's not a capital D, deacon office. When the office is started, it's a male office. When the qualifications are given, they're male qualifications. So to read here in Romans 16.1 that Phoebe was a deaconess is nonsense. She's a deaconess with a small d and that she's a servant. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea. And by the way, this is one of several instances in the New Testament when Paul gives a, a letter of recommendation of sorts. You might want to put out in the margin a couple of texts. Acts 18.27, put that next to verse 1. Acts 18.27, and 2 Corinthians 8.18. 2 Corinthians 8.18, when someone leaves this church and they go to a new church, that church will write for their letter. Why do they do that? Based on passages like this. Well, we send letters. Why? Two reasons. When someone leaves this church and they go to another church or someone comes to this church from another church, we want to make sure they're in good standing. We want to make sure that they are not leaving a church with some problem where they're under the discipline of, you know, a board of elders and they're just moving their problem. Occasionally someone has a problem, they're under discipline in this church, they think, oh, I'm just going to leave, I'm going to go to another church. It's a free country, do what you want. But you won't go with a letter of recommendation. I called a pastor just in the last two weeks and I said, look, if this person shows up, don't receive them. They have a problem in their life and they need to deal with it if they choose to move to your church. So there's a letter of recommendation about Phoebe. Why? Because she's a great woman. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this church would not be what it is not for, except for the great women of this church. Some of you guys say amen. amen. Hey, guys, I'm just trying to help you out. You know, I mean, please. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. Verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. We are saints. Our old name was sinner. Our new name is saints. We're saints who by the grace of God have been made saints. Sainthood in the Bible is not given to a distinct few people who have lived some kind of special life or did some kind of miracle. 
Sainthood in the New Testament is given to every child of God, whether they are a carnal Corinthian or a close-walking Ephesian. It made no difference whether you've been saved a week or saved for 50 years. Because sainthood in the Bible speaks of your position in Jesus Christ. It comes from a Latin word sanctus, so it comes into English as saint, but it literally means holy one. We are holy ones. Positionally, God has deemed us to be in Christ, and so He sees us as holy, and that's why every Christian in the New Testament is called a saint. Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many into myself as well. She was a trusted servant of the Apostle Paul. What did she do for him? We're not told. Maybe she fed him, look, if you come to my house, you don't want to eat my meal. Now, guys, we can cook a few things, I know that, but we can't do it like the ladies can. We admit that. God has gifted them with that expertise. If you've got a tear in your clothing, don't ask me to sew it. Now, my wife could fix it. Maybe she did those kinds of things for Paul. Maybe she kept him on track so that he didn't miss his next ship. Maybe she served him as a prayer warrior. We're not told, but she was a faithful servant. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Here's Mary, this Jewish lady with a Jewish name. She worked hard. Look at verse 12. Greet uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Here's a husband and wife team of sorts. And they're hard workers. Look at greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. That's another woman. And I say again, thank God for the women. So the first characteristic that we see as a snapshot is that God's church is to serve people. If we are to be anything, we are to be servants. All right, you still with me? Going slow, hang with me. Don't let your mind wander. Secondly, God's church is to sacrifice for his cause. We're to sacrifice for his cause. Now we find here some people who are willing to count the cost for the Lord Jesus. Verse four, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. You might want to put in your margin next to this verse, Acts 18, 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He had left Athens. He arrives in the city of Corinth, and we're told, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently become the wife uh, from, uh, having recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, same lady, Prisca for short. It's like Richard Rich. Priscilla is the long form, Prisca is the short form. Because Claudius had commanded the Jews, all the Jews, to leave Rome. They had to leave Rome as Jewish Christians because of the bigotry of Claudius. All the Jews, Christians or not, had to leave because they were so hateful to the Jewish people. And Satan has always had it out against the Jewish people. And he will until Jesus comes when the Prince of Peace will fix it all. And so God in his providence brings this couple, Aquila, that's the guy and Priscilla, to the city of Corinth. And they are going to associate themselves with the Apostle Paul. And we find three characteristics about this couple that every pastor, every missionary, everyone in full-time Christian work would pray that God would give them couples like this. First, I want you to see their hands, their work was dedicated to God. Verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, Paul, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. 
Paul was willing to go into a business relationship with them. If you remember, he came to Corinth. He didn't want to collect money from the plate on Sunday morning because he didn't want anyone to think that he had come to Corinth to line his pocket. So in this particular city, because of what false teachers had done, Paul went into a tent-making ministry. And he supported himself for a time until the church was established. But imagine if Paul supported himself as a tent maker by trade, and every Jewish man had a trade. He was taught by his dad. Suppose he worked with Aquila and Priscilla, and they had a bad reputation. Oh, yeah, A&P Tent Company. They make tents that leak. They're ripoffs. So you know that these were a couple that did their work in an honorable way. And by the way, your work is important. It's always sad to me when I see a Christian who does substandard work What a poor testimony. Most of you guys will never be in full-time ministry as I am, and your work matters just as much as mine does. And someday, Colossians 4 says that if you do it with excellence as unto the Lord, God will reward you for that one day. But not only were their hands dedicated to the Lord, their homes were. Listen to Acts of 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily with the church that is in their house. At this point, they have a church in their house. They're willing to open their home. They're willing to be hospitable. It's a requirement to be an elder in the New Testament because it's a mark of maturity. Every Christian is to show hospitality. And so when God looks at the requirements for a pastor, there must be certain things in place because those are expressions of maturity. And this couple, they're willing to open their home. Listen to what he says in Acts 18, 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila, which tells me not only were their hands and their homes, but their hearts were dedicated to the Lord. This couple was not so comfortable and so established that if God showed them to move, they couldn't move. They pick up and they leave. And when they come to Ephesus, the Acts tells us he left them there. You don't just leave anybody there to take care of the church. These were people who were sold out for the cause of Christ. So with that in mind, let me read Romans 16, 4 again. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. They put their own neck on the chopping block for Paul. That's how sold out to Christ they were. Look at verse 7. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So he calls them kinsmen. There's a warmth there. They're they're fellow workers, fellow prisoners. They suffered for the cause of Christ, and they're called outstanding. And it's a Greek word that is used to, to describe something that is stamped and leaves an impression. This was a couple who, who left an impression in the minds of the apostles because they were good, godly Christian people and they were in Christ Jesus before me. What does that mean? It means they were saved before Paul was, which tells me they had been Christians at least 25 years. For all we know, Paul persecuted them as Saul of Tarsus, but they were saved for 25 years. And you know what they're still doing? They're still serving. They're still sacrificing. Yeah, I mean, these Christians, after four or five years, they said, I paid my dues. I meet older couples and say, I'm not serving in the nursery. My kids are grown. Don't give me that responsibility, pastor. 
Or I used to serve, but now, you know, I'm, I'm just, look, if you've got the physical strength, you ought to serve somewhere. Some of you stop serving, you wonder why God takes away your physical strength. We don't really fear God. But this couple didn't serve for five or ten years. Twenty-five years later, they're still at it. Verse 12, greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. So God's people are to serve God's people. God's people are to sacrifice for his cause. Third and finally, God's church is to trust his sovereignty. Just quickly, verse 13, we're to trust his sovereignty. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, Rufus here is called a choice man, and he's one of the interesting unknown characters of the Bible. But I want you to see the sovereignty of God because this man is mentioned in Mark's gospel. Let me read to you Mark 15, verse 21. Uh, this is a really interesting verse of Scripture. They pressed into service. By the way, the context is Jesus has left the Bema, Pilate's judgment seat, and he's going outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the gate to Golgotha where they crucified people. And on the way, we're told, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So they find this guy who apparently has no carnal desire to watch a, a crucifixion. He's not there to see the gore of seeing nails put in some people's hands and feet. He's not one of these rubbernecks who wants to see a good wreck. He has to be pressed into service. Luke says he uses a strong verb. He has to be laid hold into service. Here's this guy, Cyrene, from North Africa. Why is he in Jerusalem? For one reason, he is a pious Jew. And he's there because God called him to be there under the Mosaic law to celebrate Passover. And on the way, they press him into service. And when you read the text, you find out as he listens to the Lord Jesus walking right behind him. And he hears all this stuff where Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourself and for your children. And he hears all the mocking and all the laughter and all the, uh, the hateful things they said to the Lord Jesus. Of course, this guy ends up being saved. In fact, a reliable outside source of the Bible, Titus Flavius Josephus, tells us that Simon of Cyrene was converted and he went back to North Africa and planted a church. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he's one of the 120 in the upper room because there were men of Cyrene who were there and present. In either case, who did he go home and speak to? His family. I mean, think about it. He, he goes back to Cyrene there in North Africa. He says, you'll never believe what happened to me. Well, I was there on Passover. On Passover day, the promised Passover lamb that we've been praying for for 2,000 years, I carried his cross and I watched him die and I watched them mock him. But just as the prophet said, he was raised from the dead and he is alive. And he has two sons who are converted. One is Alexander, and the other is Rufus, and Mark mentions both of them. What happened to Alexander? Why doesn't Paul mention Alexander? Well, we have a very reliable tradition that Alexander was martyred because he lived for Jesus Christ. 
But Rufus went on and he served there in the city of Rome. And so some 30 years later, notice how Simon is identified by Mark. When Mark writes his gospel 30 years later, he describes him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is that significant? It'd be like saying, um, Gigi is the daughter of Billy Graham. Now, a lot of you don't know who Billy Graham is. I'm realizing that. He was probably the most famous evangelist in the history of the church next to Paul. But the lesser is often identified in the terms of the greater. You see that not just in Scripture. You see that in our own culture. And so when Mark identifies these two sons, they had more notoriety than their daddy did, which says a whole lot about Rufus and the kind of, I mean, uh, Simon of Cyrene and the kind of legacy that he left. One of his sons was martyred. The other is a leader in the church. And then Paul describes further, Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother, and also his mother and mine. Not his literal mother, but his figurative mother. And Jesus spoke of that. You leave father and mother, but you gain father and mother and brothers and sisters wherever you go. And so she loved Paul as his own son. Now, how can we apply this text today? Let me make three suggestions as we close. Number one, I'm reminded from this passage of Scripture that people are important to God. People are important to God. You ever wonder why this chapters included in the Bible. I mean, the names are difficult to pronounce. And in fact, 75% of the commentaries just either omit it or they just skim over it. Or if they want to get real technical, they just spend the whole chapter on the meaning of names. I've got a few commentaries. If you have trouble sleeping at night, let me know. I'll give you two pages and you'll be in deep anesthesia. I mean, they are really paralyzing. But these names are mentioned here. Because people are important to God. Christ died for people. What do people do for you? Do they bother you? Or do they challenge you? Do you consider them as an interruption? Or do you consider them as an invitation? And when you read these names, most of these names you find nowhere else in all of the Word of God which is a reminder to me that there's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. We're all sinners saved by grace. In this day of celebrities, there are no celebrities in the body of Christ, only servants. God said, for he is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown towards his name. People that nobody knows, but God knows. And he wrote their name down here in the Romans. Second, I learn if God cares for people, then we should care for one another. Again, you read through this chapter, and these people are very sensitive to the needs of others. This is a loving group of people, and we've read these many expressions of warmth, terms like a helper of many. They risk their lives for other Christians. They're beloved. They're hard workers. They're outstanding. They're fellow workers. They're fellow prisoners. They're approved. They're like a mother, brethren, sisters, saints. It resonates with love and service and care for each other. Now, some people come here on a Sunday morning and they come because they feel so dirty and they're looking somehow to find forgiveness. Other people come, they're believers, and they come so discouraged because they have failed so greatly. 
Other people come because there's a crisis in their home and they're looking for an answer. Some people come because it's profitable for business. People come for all kinds of reasons. If someone's an authentic Christian, they come for fellowship, they come for the teaching of the Word, and they come to worship the living God. But it's probably safe to say that for whatever reason someone came, they came to find human companionship, to meet some fellow human being. And that's why it's so important, you know, ushers and greeters, you're not just handing out a piece of paper. You're encountering people. And when you sit in that seat, the person to the left, to the right of you, in front of you, or behind you are very, very important. And I hope in a genuine way, not in a sticky emotionalism, but in a genuine way, we would be able to communicate. We care about you, and we hope you will come back. Third and finally, I'm reminded that caring about God's people and being sensitive to their needs is impossible apart from a second birth. Everyone in this chapter has one thing in common. They've been born again. They care about the church because they met God in His care. God saved them. God loved him first, them first, and so they're loving others. They care about God's people because they have met God in His love and in His care. See, there's only two classes of people in this room, those who are believers and those who are not. Two classes of people who are listening to me today, wherever you may be. Those who build the church and those who destroy the church. You might be thinking, well, pastor, I'm not one of those born-again Christians, but I'm not trying to destroy the church. I don't hate God. Well, Jesus could not have said it any more precisely. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not saved, whether you know it or not, you are scattering and you need Christ, and you need a second birth, and if you will come to the Lord Jesus today, He will forgive you of every vestige of sin you've ever committed. He'll take your sins that are dirty, and He'll make them as white as snow, and He'll give you the Holy Spirit as we sang in one of our hymns, and He'll come to live in you, and He will be your helper, and He will equip you to live the Christian life. But you need to come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help someone, no matter how religious they may be, to understand that without the foundation of Christ in their life, without trusting in his death and resurrection to save them, they are hopeless. Help them to realize that salvation is not something that you earn. It is something that you receive. It is the gift of God. And so you promised whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you receive sinful men. Now we come before you as people, most of whom have already met you as the living Lord. Give someone today who has recently made that decision the courage to come and to confess that before men. Help someone else as an act of obedience, as, as an act of love towards you to be baptized as an emblem of their salvation. And help some saint who knows you and loves you, who's looking for a church home. Oh God, we're asking you for more laborers to reach this county and this nation for Christ. 
We love you, our Father, because you first loved us, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Even though the office of deacon is exclusive to some, the position of saint is offered to all. All you have to do is to put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM72, entitled Snapshot of God's Church. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. Well, you can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we look at some breaking news as we search the scriptures. <music>